you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. Yesterday was November 22nd, 2007, the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination, November 22nd, 1963, November 22nd, 2007. And today on the Nardwarda Human Serviette, we're going to reinvestigate the assassination of John F. Kennedy via 1991. Yes, on a Nerdwater Human Serviette radio show, we're going to go back to 1991, November 22nd, 1991, when I interviewed conspiracy researcher J. Gary Shaw as part of CITR's Assassination Weekend. We had the Kennedy Assassination Weekend Marathon. We played 24, might even been 48 hours worth of Dave Emery from Radio Free America's tapes on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. After the interview with J. Gary Shaw from November 22nd, 1991, we're going to play a brand new interview that Dave Emery did with an assassination researcher. And then a couple weeks from now, we're going to have Dave Emery live on an Nardwarda Human Serviette radio show. We wanted to have Dave Emery live on an Nardwarda Human Serviette radio show here today, but unfortunately he was busy. However, he did kindly provide a little bit of brand new updates as to what was going on with him and with the Kennedy assassination since 1991. So, a lot of dates here. November 22nd, 1963. November 22nd, 1991, my interview with assassination researcher J. Gary Shaw. And this was part of CITR's 24, 48-hour Kennedy assassination marathon where we played all these tapes that John F. Kennedy had been talked about by Dave Emery because Dave Emery has this amazing, amazing, amazing radio show that you can actually hear on different radio stations. And at that time, it was getting played on CITR. So we compiled all of the Kennedy assassination bits and put them into one giant marathon weekend. So anytime I'm referring to the Kennedy assassination marathon weekend, that's what we're talking about. And then after, on an Arboretum Human Survey Radio Show, we'll have a brand new update with Dave Emery on what's going on with the assassination. And in a couple weeks from now, we will have an actual live interview with David Emery. And you can check out David Emery at Spitfire List, Spitfire List, and also search Dave Emery as well through Yahoo, A-E-M-O-R-Y, Dave Emery. So right now, here is assassination researcher J. Gary Shaw from November 22nd, 1991. Who are you? (laughs) I guess that is a good question. Basically, I'm an architect and have been in that profession for a number of years and uh, have lived in the Dallas area all my life. And, of course, was very interested in history and things of that nature. And uh, when the assassination occurred in 1963, uh, I began to collect. And then the more I read, uh, the more I became disturbed about uh, the official conclusion. And so since that period of time, I've been actively engaged in research, investigation, interviewing with witnesses, that sort of Why should people care about the Kennedy assassination? I mean, some people might say, you know, modern-day problems, we should deal with them. Aren't they more important? Why should people care about the Kennedy assassination? Well, the Kennedy assassination, and I think historians are already pointing to it as a real turning point in our nation's history. 
up until that time, we had basically uh, believed our government, believed that they would tell us the truth and do the right thing. Uh, the events of, uh, of the times since that period have been uh, like the Vietnamese War, uh, Watergate, the Iran-Contra, and, and public trust in our officials has, has, dwell, you know, has uh, dwindled to basically uh, zero. And uh, the thing about uh, the murder of the president, here's the chief executive of our country who's murdered. And uh, 28 years after the fact, it's still an unsolved crime. Uh, the thing that we can say without, with, with great authority is that uh, we may not be able to point a finger at who did it, but we can certainly say with some definitiveness now that Lee Harvey Oswald probably didn't. And if he did anything at all, he certainly didn't do it alone. Therefore, the government has lied to us and continued to lie to us for these 28 years. And uh, if they covered it up in 1963 and they're still covering up today, then that means that there are people in control that will not only lie about that, they'll lie about other things. Therefore, we're a, a nation that's built on a foundation of lies and deceit and dishonesty and, and murder. Had these things been going on before? I've read somewhere, I've, read, I've heard also before that when the U2 was downed in, at, at the conference in, um, in, when, in, in a peace conference, it was a warning to Eisenhower, hey, there are other people in control. And when the Bay of Pigs failed, it was a warning to Kennedy that, hey, people are other in control. But he didn't pay attention to that. Have you heard anything about that? Well, I think that's a, that's a good, plausible uh, theory. Basically, what happened is, and, and uh, many people don't know this, is that Lee Harvey Oswald, when he was in the Marine Corps, was stationed at the U-2 base uh, over in the uh, Pacific and actually uh, had knowledge of the radar systems and the flights of the U-2 planes that were going over Russia. And it was after he had uh, got out of the Marine Corps, went to Russia, uh, tried to defect from the United States, that suddenly the, the Russians came up with enough uh, intelligence that they were able to shoot down Francis Gary Powers in a, in a U-2 flight, and it crashed, and of course it did disrupt the Eisenhower-Khrushchev summit that was to come sometime after that. So, um, you know, that's a little tidbit of history. And then uh, when uh, the President uh, Kennedy became, became the president in uh, January of 1961 after the 60s election, he uh, inherited uh, an already in place plan initiated by the uh, military and the CIA to uh, invade and take over Cuba and uh, rid itself of Fidel Castro. Uh, this planning actually started under the Eisenhower administration and the man who was in uh, chief control of it or authority of it was then Vice President Richard Nixon. And, uh, so that, that failed. Uh, Kennedy became very irate. He thought that uh, the CIA and, and the military ought to be better planners than that. And he said, I'm going to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces. He put it under the control of Robert Kennedy, his brother, who was the attorney general. And, you know, that part is all history. The basic findings of the Warren Commission investigating the assassination of John F. Kennedy were, weren't they were that Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, single-handedly killed the president and critically wounded Governor Connolly. Was it Gunner, Governor Connolly or was it Senator Connolly? It was Governor. At that Governor, time. Governor Connolly. And from an impossible angle, he did all this. He shot. So acting alone, he single-handedly killed the president, critically wounded Governor Ken, Ken, Connolly from an impossible angle with just three shots. And all this from a single bolt-action mail-order rifle. 
and those who uh, have studied this, who are familiar with weapons, who have who have even attempted to duplicate this feat, have been unbelievable too. And the that rifle, that rifle was a poor rifle. It was one of the worst to come out of World War II. And it didn't have a proper gun sight, don't no it? No proper gun sight. Misaligned. Actually mounted for a left-handed person, and Oswald was not left-handed. And uh, you know, you can go on and on. The the thing that's sinister about that, and and, and to be remembered that. that out of this came the infamous single bullet theory, which said the, the Lee Harvey Oswald fired a shot that went through uh, President Kennedy at the back of his neck, exited his throat, paused about a second and a half in midair, made a right hand and then a left hand downward turn to strike Governor Connolly in the back, exit his back, blast out, I mean, enter his back, blast out four inches of his fifth rib, exit his chest, go through the main bone of his right wrist, and then embed itself into the left thigh. The man who created this theory is now a senator, and a very prominent one, who was on the Warren Commission named Arlen Specter, who recently uh, sat in, uh, of course, with Teddy Kennedy on the, uh, on the infamous Clarence Thomas hearings. The whole Warren Commission is based upon the fact, like they say, there were only three shots fired at Dealey Plaza right. on November 22nd, 1963. And all from one, one source, and that's Lee Oswald to the right rear. Lee Oswald, but hasn't there been acoustical and other evidence to prove that this is wrong? In other words, the whole Warren Commission bases its fact that there were three shots fired. And if anybody can prove that there are more from three shots fired, it throws the whole Warren Commission out the window. They not only had acoustical evidence presented in 1978, to refute that all the shots came from one source, that at least one came from the president's right front, the uh, grassy knoll area. But the Warren Commission in 1963 and 64 had within their own hands evidence from eyewitnesses at the scene. About 75% of the people who were at the scene and gave an opinion as to the origin of shots said that at least one shot was fired at the president from the grassy knoll. In a court of law, that would have held up uh, under any type of scrutiny. There, were, there was a puff of smoke seen from the area. There were seen people running from the area, uh, people who went back to try to, to apprehend or at least see who had fired the shots were stopped by uh, men obviously showing fake Secret Service credentials and telling them they could, they could go no further. And so not only did they see guns in the area and smoke in the area and shots, hear shots come from the area, but they also saw and, and came in contact with people who didn't want them back in the area investigating too soon. Like, further, furthermore, Oswald, he wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. He wasn't even a good shot, was he? He wasn't in the Marine Corps. He was at the sort of the bottom of, uh, of uh, riflemen in the Marine Corps and, and never claimed to be a good rifleman. How can people still in the 1990s believe the findings of the commission? Like I noticed researcher Jim Moore, who's going to be at this conference you're attending, he's put out a book, it says, that he still believes Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. So how can people believe that, this, that these three shots still happened? You have to close your eyes and, and uh, put your hands over your ears and not look at anything or hear anything that uh, is contrary to what the Warren Commission tried to put forth. That's the only way you can do it, because all, all one has to do is to read and to look, and it soon becomes clear that not only is something very, very wrong, but in actuality they tried to perpetrate upon the American people a lie, and uh, we need to know why they did it and therefore who they're protecting. 
Do you believe Gary, Gary Shaw, Jay Gary Shaw? That's because we're talking to here. Thank you very much. Do you believe that any shots were fired from the school book, the Texas school book depository? Very probably. Uh, eyewitnesses saw a man in that window uh, with uh, what appeared to be a rifle. And so I have no doubt that uh, at least one and two shots were fired. But eyewitnesses also saw a man in the far window from that, in other words, in a westerly direction uh, before the shots were fired, and saw him cradling a gun, standing back in the shadows. People saw gunmen on the nose, and uh, we've counted at least seven shots that were fired. Bullets were picked up in the area, by the way, that were never shown and in, uh, in, entered into evidence. We have photographic evidence of a, a man who is called an FBI agent by the chief of police at that time and uh, this bullet has never been entered into evidence. The actual bullets that were picked up in the limousine of John F. Kennedy when it was fired into them, have they ever been linked to Lee Harvey Oswald's gun? Of course they were. They, they were not found immediately, and, and they were never uh, initialed and, and a chain established between who found them, where they were found, and, and when they were turned over investigators, just as the uh, famous magic bullet. Uh, there's no chain of evidence or linkage between the people who found it. In fact, when, uh, when they finally went back to the, to the person who found the famous magic bullet at Parkland Hospital, it was said to have linked Oswald's rifle to the president's death. Uh, the, uh, the man who picked it up said, I can't identify this as the bullet. The bullet I saw and I picked up had a sharp nose. This has a rounded nose. And uh, so it's just on and on. The, the evidence would, been, would have been thrown out of a court of law. Have people in Dallas been frustrated by this over the years? I think by and large most are now as, as the truth continues to come out and hammer at them. And uh, they have finally come to the point that they have, they have accepted the fact that Dallas uh, was simply incidental to the assassination. They now know that there were 240-something threats against the president from March of 1963 until November that uh, already broken up had been two major plots, one in Chicago in early November and, and one in Miami in mid-November of 1963. And uh, the fact is, they were going to get him, and uh, they finally happened to do so in Dallas. But Dallas was nowhere to blame, and uh, it just happened to be the city that they finally got to him. Do some people believe that it, is a, it was a successfully spearheaded governmental coup? Did they go as far as thinking that, that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was that, indeed, a successfully spearheaded governmental coup? I think so, uh, and uh, I'm one of those. And uh, I can give you a good reason for it. Any time that there's a crime and there is a cover-up of that crime, then your, your first suspicion should be drawn to the person or people responsible for the cover-up. That's proper suspicion of guilt. And in this case, the FBI, the CIA, the Warren Commission, uh, different individuals and different agencies of this government have actively and fraudulently uh, put over a lie uh, to the American people. And uh, they've covered it up and continue to cover it up. Or I think that's proper suspicious of guilt, suspicion of guilt. And when people like you, Gary Shaw, when you try to bring this to their attention, they just label you as like a, like a conspiracy theorist. They never call you researchers, do they? Right. Conspiracy nut, conspiracy buff, conspiracy theorist. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different names. But, uh, you know, and, and like in any uh, group, there are some that are a little south of flaky, if you know what I mean. Uh, and a little bit uh, uh, on the nutty fringe, but by and large, the critical 
She's very serious-minded, very well-educated, uh, sincere Americans who love this democracy and uh, would like to see it uh, prevail. And the only way that can happen is for us to finally arrive at truth. Cancer uh, will eat away at us if it's not treated, and, and you, can't, uh, you can't build anything on falsehood and lies and deceit. What have been some of the most startling revelations or discoveries made by assassination researchers since 1963? Well, they've destroyed the single bullet theory, for one. You know, when that first came out, you know, we felt it was plausible. They tried to hide the medical evidence and the autopsy findings of the president from us. They, we finally got those and got photographs. And, and people like David Lifton and, uh, and Robert Groden and, and some of these guys have... Uh, vividly portrayed the falsehood of, uh, of the medical evidence and how the, the president's wounds uh, in no way coincide with a lone gut, lone, lone nut uh, assassin. And uh, that's one of the major findings in destroying that single bullet theory and, and finding all of the eyewitnesses that the Warren Commission chose to ignore and, and uh, getting their stories and putting them down in black and white. Learning of the other arrests uh, that were made in this case and and uh, uh, no charges filed and released some without their names even being taken, though they're very suspicious. Uh, there's just been one find and one revelation after the other. Much information has been, you know, has a lot of information has not been disclosed by the U.S. government regarding the events at Dealey Plaza, hasn't it? Like, there's a lot of stuff to government, uh, government records that researchers would like to be released that aren't. Well, for instance, the, the Warren Commission, when they disbanded in September of 1964, locked up a certain amount of their records for 75 years. Uh, when the House Select Committee on Assassinations closed their books on the case in uh, December of 1979, they locked their records up for 50 years. So the earliest that we can see anything probably is the year 2039. What's I'm 53 years old. That's 40-something years from now. I doubt very seriously if I see much of it. What's to say, though, that when that stuff is finally released, that it hasn't been destroyed already? That's a good question, and, and one uh, either destroyed or uh, uh, sanitized or manipulated and changed enough that the, that the official record is no longer the real record. And uh, they've had uh, right now they've had 28 years to do that, and uh, by the time uh, we wait another 40 or 45 years, uh, you know they'll have more time to, to do it. So that's the sad thing. They, they need to be released now before anything else could be done to them. And, uh, you know, if that be the case. But, uh, you know, there, there's truth just now coming out 50 years after the fact about things that happened in World War II. They've kept them secret and kept them locked up. Uh, the normal range, I'm, I'm led to understand, for secrecy in the government is 40 to 50 years. We can't wait that long with the death of the president. If it was a coup d'etat, a takeover of this government by someone within there, and, and uh, let's say they had a 20 or 25-year, 30-year plan by which to put their uh, government and their steps into operation, my friend, they're well on their way, and it needs to be exposed and stopped. And uh, if it takes revolution, if it takes exposure, if it takes taking some names off buildings and crumpling some statues like they've done in Russia, uh, then uh, let's do it. Have any governmental legislators at all, any members of the government, elected officials, pursued this and told the government they want to reopen the case? Oh, of course not. 
you know, back in the uh, back in the 70s when uh, the uh, uh, information started coming out that this government, with its intelligence agencies, had been actively engaged in assassinations of foreign leaders, then there was a cry, you know, by congressmen and by senators to, hey, let's let's do something about this. Well, they had a semi or quasi. Uh, forum and uh, exposed a few things and then uh, kicked dirt over it and went on. And it was status quo. Let's just be a little more careful in the future. And uh, that's pretty well been the case in the, in the political arena. It's too hot a potato for pol politicians who are feathering their own nest and more worried about getting elected and, and what kind of speaker's fees they get and this sort of thing. Lee Harvey Oswald always claimed that he was a patsy. Do any tapes of his interrogation exist? No tapes exist. And uh, the man who interrogated him or had the primary responsibility was Captain Will Fritz of the Dallas Police Department. And he's still around today, isn't he? Oh, no, he died a few years ago. But his standard uh, answer to that is, I kept no notes. That does not, does not mean that he didn't take notes because there, there's official record that he did. Uh, what it means is that uh, he uh, turned them over to somebody else or he destroyed them. And, of course, they've never seen the light of day. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is, is recorded uh, visually by, uh, by the press saying, I am just a patsy. I didn't kill anyone. And uh, that is exactly how I feel today, that he was a patsy and he didn't shoot or kill anybody. On November 22, 1963, when Lee Harvey Oswald, like he was, dry, he was driven to work that day um, at his job at the Texas School Book Depository, he was bringing that day, was he not bringing what was to be curtain rod to work with him? That's what he told the like, driver and the... And the uh, like his friend, he said, I'm bringing some cur curtain rod to work. Right. And the Warren Commission said that, of course, it wasn't, this wasn't a curtain rod, you were bringing a gun to, to work and, to and kill the president. But the thing is, what was Lee Harvey Oswald, why would he be bringing a curtain rod to work anyways at a school book depository? Okay, you've got to realize that he had a small room rented in, uh, in another part of Dallas while his wife and, uh, and family was living with a friend in Irving, Texas, a, a suburb of Dallas. And he had gone home from his room the night before and spent the night with his family and was going back to his room that weekend. And his room had no curtains. And so he had gotten some curtain rods and were, were taking them to, uh, to hang in his room. And uh, the, uh, the significant thing about that is that the Warren Commission tried to say that that was the rifle, but the, the driver who saw the package said it was no more than 24 to 28 inches long. In fact, when Oswald got out of the car, he cupped it in his right hand and the end of the uh, package went under his armpit. Well, the rifle in its uh, smallest length after it's disassembled is, is about 36 inches, 32 inches, and would have been eight to, to 10 inches longer than that package and could not have been tucked under his armpit. But if Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy and he'd fired no shots or anything, how did the conspirators get Lee Harvey Oswald that very day to bring a curtain rod to work? so the Warren Commission would be able to nail him. I think, that was, I think that was just convenient. The rifle had already been planted up there. The shells had already been planted up there. He was on the second floor in the lunchroom. Uh, the evidence is clear on that, just as he said he was. He said that's where he was, in the lunchroom. He was not on the sixth floor. And uh, that uh, became just a circumstantial piece. They had to have uh, some way to get that rifle up there, and, and that's the only thing they could think of. Uh, you know, the... 
the chief of police at that time, Jesse Curry, in later years, finally admitted publicly and on the record, he said, you know, we were never able to put Oswald in that building with the gun. And uh, that remains the fact even today. There's links to his gun as well, Lee Harvey Oswald's gun, that famous gun. Like there's that backyard, there's that famous, famous, comes near again, that famous Oswald backyard photo of himself holding the gun. That became a major selling point of Oswald as the assassin to the American people. Yeah, here he was, holding the gun in his backyard. Well, it's worse than that. He's dressed all in black, so he's a bad guy. He's holding the weapons of, of destruction, uh, a pistol and a rifle, uh, meaning that he killed a police officer and he killed uh, uh, the president. He was a killer, dressed in black, and he's holding in his hand, conveniently, two communist newspapers, which means he's a, he's a communist also. So here we have the the guy in black, the bad guy, the killer, uh, and, and the communist, all wrapped up into one, and that's plastered on the cover of Life magazine, who's already lied about the case. And uh, Life magazine lied about the case, oh. case when they reversed uh, the Pruder film, wasn't it? Well, that's one thing, but one of the major lies came out in uh, less than two weeks after the assassination. Uh, there was a speculations and rumors section in, in Life magazine. And one of them was, how could uh, the president have been shot in the throat from the front, from that window, which was to his rear? And they, they who had bought, Life magazine I'm talking about, who had bought and locked up the Zapruder film. Did Zapruder get much money for that film? About a quarter of a million. But anyway, they, they say this 8mm film shows the president standing, turning and standing in the, uh, in, the, in the automobile and exposing his throat to that window to the rear of him. It wasn't until about 67 or 68 when we finally saw the full film that we realized they lied. Never did he turn around and never did he face that window. And that shot from the throat came from the grassy nose. But that is an outright falsehood. Unfortunately, we, by the time we discovered that, the man who wrote the story was already dead. Is Oswald's vehicle that he got a ride to work that day, or President Kennedy's limo, or either of those vehicles still around, those cars still around? The uh, presidential limousine was taken within 48 hours uh, to a plant and completely uh, dismantled and reassembled. It's, uh, you know, it should have been like Ford's Theater. It should have been a historical vehicle, put in wraps for a while, but later uh, ending up in, uh, in the Smithsonian because uh, that's a part of our history, like it or not. And uh, you can go across this country now and, and uh, the museums and you can see uh, things like Bonnie and Clyde's automobile and uh, you know, things of that nature. And it's a part of our history, but yet this one was destroyed. I think it was destruction of, of uh, material evidence. And the car Lee Harvey Oswald drove to work that day supposedly to assassinate the President of the United States of America, is that still around? Not that I'm aware of. Could Lee Harvey Oswald be the Oliver North of the Kennedy assassination? Uh, in what way? Well, like... In the, a, the, the fall guy or the one who uh, ultimately... Uh, like, the fall, well, the fall guy sort of. Well, what I'm saying by that is, okay, maybe he was a patsy, but don't you think he was still working for... Like, he was still working for the government. He was still, in a way, part of this gigantic scheme, possibly. Well, that's something that you have to consider just from his background and, and having gone to Russia and he comes back to this country and he's uh, everything that he does from the time he's in the Marine Corps until he's uh, killed by Jack Ruby has the fingerprints of intelligence on it. Uh, they were using people just like him in all kinds of, of covert activities. And 
you know, everything that uh, he did and everything that he uh, uh, said seems to in indicate that he was a, a low-echelon intelligence operative for somebody here in the United States of America. There were plenty of Oswald doubles present in Dallas, too, around the assassination, weren't there? There were several, yes. Uh, in fact, there were, uh, before the assassination, uh, someone was going around using his name and calling attention to himself, uh, leaving his name and everything that would tie him to Russia, to uh, coming into a, a large amount of money, to uh, practicing at a rifle range, and firing at another man's target to call attention to his gun and, and to his accuracy of shooting. All of these things, uh, building a, uh, a bona fides or, uh, you know, a, a cover, whatever you want to call it, pointing to him uh, as the assassin. And a lot of people forget, though, that he went, he, he defected to the Soviet Union, and then he was honorably, was he honorably discharged from, from the, when he got back from the Soviet Union? No, in, in fact, he was, uh, he got a, a uh, honorable discharge, and he got a, a, a uh, early release because of uh, medical problems with his mother. And, uh, but he, he spent one day with his mother and then took off to New Orleans and then uh, jumped a ship and, uh, and went to Russia. But he was allowed when, he, when he came back, while he was over there, he, he uh, publicly announced that he was defecting to Russia and renouncing his American citizenship. So in that uh, phase, he was given a, a dishonorable discharge. And when he came back in the United States of America, he, would, there was not, he was not watched over at all, was he? That's correct. He was just let free access here, this possible we, spy, least, they just let him go. At least that's what we're told. Of course, we've not seen all the files. Uh, we know that there are about uh, four drawers of of, uh, of files that uh, even the House Select Committee on Assassinations, who had access to them, did not even look at. And uh, the, uh, the CIA kind of poked fun at them because they just made a cursory uh, review of, of the files that they had just on Lee Harvey Oswald. So we don't know what he was doing and, and who was watching him, who, who his case officer was, who he was reporting to. He was not an unknown type character. Like, this was not some guy out of the blue. This guy had a record. Yes, uh, and he had a record of, of uh, a pro-communist uh, stance. And uh, yet, on the other hand, he was also uh, seen trying to, uh, to infiltrate uh, anti-Castro groups. So he was playing both sides of the street and uh, obviously being manipulated by somebody who uh, had some use for him in the future. He was also portrayed as being, like you say, pro-Castro uh, pro on that radio broadcast that was, he was on the radio. He was actually, he had been on the radio, in yes. fact. Yes. Like, he wasn't such an obscure guy. He was even been on the radio. And wasn't it that radio broadcast that labeled him as pro-Castro? Wasn't that broadcast the very night before the assassination of John F. Kennedy? No, it was sometime before that 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 was done. That was in uh, probably August of 1963, and, and it came about because of... Uh, a little incident he had stirred up on the streets of uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, with uh, by passing out fair play for Cuba leaflets. And as he was doing so, some anti-Castro people that said he had tried to infiltrate infiltrate their group as a as being a, uh, a marine and and uh, could uh, help train the anti-Castro uh, people, and uh, knew him from that, and said he's a you know hey this guy's a uh, you know, a double agent or, you know, he's a Castroite trying to get into ours, and so they started a little ruckus. Wasn't, and, uh, wasn't there even possibly an escape plan for Lee Harvey Oswald organized by some of his New Orleans associates like David Ferry? 
after the assassination? That's uh, what we surmise. We don't have any, you know, hard uh, and fast evidence of that, but we do have uh, knowledge that uh, Ferry, as a pilot, had uh, uh, been in Dallas with an airplane and uh, that he was, uh, you know, parked at a nearby uh, small airport just at the edge of Dallas and that the motors were running uh, at the time of the assassination and this was supposed to, to get uh, either the assassins or, or somebody out of Dallas. And of course the police car pulled up in front of his house and honked the horn. That's one of the strange things that, uh, that occurred and uh, has never been explained. It shows that uh, Oswald had some uh, complicity with uh, at least uh, two Dallas policemen because the car contained two Dallas, uh, what the landlady said, two Dallas policemen in it when it's Oliver North is making that movie JFK and that's about that's basically isn't it gonna be basically the story of New Orleans district attorney deter, uh, district attorney Jim Garrison's when you're getting the two couple of people mixed up it's Oliver Stone who's uh, who has quite Oliver a, Stone sorry about that yeah, yeah has sorry. quite a record for making uh, uh, movies in in Hollywood he's he's the one who did born on the 4th of July yeah sir I got Oliver North Oliver Stone right. mixed up so a little so he's an Academy Award winner. Yeah, and, and uh, he's, he's making this movie about JFK. And it, isn't it about New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's late 1960s investigation into the assassination? I think that's only one part of it. I've not seen the script, but I have worked with uh, their people, but it's uh, some in the research. But it, uh, it appears that it will. Uh, Kevin Costner will be playing Jim Garrison, so it, Garrison plays a major role in it. And in, an, in, a, in the after-investigation, which is what I call it, you know, that uh, the Garrison uh, uh, deal down in New Orleans played a major role in, in shaping a lot of uh, what, we, uh, what we know today and, and what we are today. How come a lot of people, including assassination researchers, have not much regard for Garrison? Like, was not his work groundbreaking? And uh, initially it was, and, uh, you know, simply here was a man in a position uh, to do something officially. He had the, the power to subpoena and to, and to bring indictments and to question people and, and open it up, in, up into a court of law. But uh, somewhere down the line, whether by uh, stealth or, or just whether by ignorance or, or whatever it might be, uh, the case got sidetracked and ended up being somewhat uh, a fiasco that uh, really set us back as far as research and critics back several years. And, uh, very similar to what the House Select Committee did in 1978 with their fiasco and their uh, ballyhoo of going after the truth and then going, uh, you know, nowhere near the truth. So if Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone, not Oliver North, right. if Oliver Stone follows Garrison's script you know, or follow Garrison's story, won't that movie be almost totally distorted then? I don't think that he's going to follow, uh, you know, Garrison. What happened to Garrison, and, and, I, and I'm... And I'm guessing, because like I say, I don't know what Oliver Stone's movie is going to be, but I'm guessing because of what the government did to try to, to uh, steamroll Garrison's investigation. Let me give you just one little uh, incident that uh, kind of shows you how 
the government reacted to Garrison even opening an investigation down there. When he charged Clay Shaw uh, there in New Orleans for a conspiracy to kill the president, the press, of course, immediately went to the uh, United States Attorney General, who at that time was Ramsey Clark, a Texan, and they said, hey, uh, you know, what about this Clay Shaw that, uh, that Garrison is charged down in New Orleans? And Mr. Clark said the FBI investigated Clay Shaw in 1963 and 64 and found that he had nothing to do with this. But then some probing reporter, smart, said, well, Mr. Clark, why was the FBI investigating Clay Shaw in 1963 and 1964? And later on, Mr. Clark had to come back and say, I was mistaken. Uh, the FBI did not investigate Clay Shaw. And that just gives you an idea. They, they came after Garrison uh, like uh, uh, bees after uh, uh, pollen. You know, I mean, it was just a, a case that uh, scared them to death, and uh, they did everything in the world to disrupt whatever he did down there. Including Ronald Reagan. Did he have a part in disrupting the Garrison case? Well, I don't know that he had a part. Garrison did want to subpoena and bring to New Orleans a man that was in California at that time. And... Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was governor, and he refused to uh, to uh, grant uh, that. But the same thing also happened in Texas. Uh, governor Conley refused to uh, allow uh, a man here in Dallas to be extradited to New Orleans to uh, to testify. Also, so uh, you know, there was a lot of backlash to any official investigation, and I, I feel that uh, probably that's what. Uh, Oliver Stone is going to do is to point the finger at, at some of the things that Garrison did uncover, but also to how the government uh, lashed out at him because he was investigating I guess, if nothing else, Stone's movie will open some eyes, a lot like your assassination symposium that's going to be coming out. And that's, you're, you're participating in this, Gary Shaw. Uh, what is this all about? This It's called ASK. ASK is the Assassination Symposium on John F. Kennedy, and basically it's a uh, two-day uh, conference uh, with some of the best writers and, and critics and researchers on the subject coming from all over the United States and gathering for the first time in Dallas, the site of the assassination, and at the Hyatt Regency there holding a, uh, a two-day symposium or seminar. Uh, we'll be hearing from eyewitnesses from Dealey Plaza, eyewitnesses from Parkland Hospital, eyewitnesses from Bethesda Naval Hospital where the president was autopsied. And uh, we'll also be hearing from people like Mark Lane, uh, Dr. Cyril Wecht, uh, Robert Groden, Jim Mars, John Davis, uh, the writers and, and people who, are, who have spent many, many years researching and writing and, and uncovering the true facts about this case. So it'll be a good two days. And it's going to happen this year and next year as well? Is this going to be a continuing thing? Our plans are to do it every year and, and, uh, and get larger and larger. Is there an assassination newsletter one can write away for or groups, organ or groups talking about the assassination? There uh, are a couple of newsletters. I don't have them in front of me, but uh, one is called The Third Decade, which uh, comes out of Fredonia, New York, uh, Professor Jerry Rose. Uh, has that. It's a quarterly and uh, very well done. Uh, there is a, uh, a new newsletter that's called, uh, if I can think of the name of it because it's just out. The first issue is just out and uh, and very well done, I think. And 
that your writer might be interested in. It's called Back Channels. And uh, it's done by, uh, its editor is Peter Cross, K-R-O-S-S. And if they're interested, uh, they can write to P.O. Box 9, Franklin Park, New Jersey. The zip is 00823-0009. And that was for what, what, what newsletter was that? Back Channels, two words. Back Channels. And uh, it's called a quarterly publication of historical modern espionage, assassinations, and conspiracies. The first issue just came out in October. So uh, someone's subscribing to it right now. It's, uh, it's only $9 a year initially, and uh, I would suggest that they get their $9 check off and, and uh, get, those, uh, get it from the first issue. When someone is in Dallas, they can also, or is, I'm not sure, Dallas, you, you are curator of uh, JFK Assassination Center? Yes, we have what is called the JFK Assassination Information Center. We're three blocks uh, north of the actual site of the president's death, and uh, we've created an exhibit there that uh, exposes all of these uh, things that uh, somewhat as we've discussed today with many artifacts, documents, uh, hundreds and hundreds of photographs, uh, film strips, and, uh, and a movie theater that shows a, a, a short historical piece on the assassination, and also a bookstore and uh, so forth, where you can buy the latest on books as well as uh, collectibles uh, on uh, the John Kennedy murder. In Vancouver, B.C., Canada here on CITR Radio, our radio station, CITR, we broadcast a show called Radio Free America, Dave Emery's Radio Free America, which has the Guns of November parts one to four and is heavily based upon, you know, the research of Mae Bressel. Are you aware of any of her work at all? Uh, very little. I, I know the name and, and uh, you know, have seen her mentioned uh, many times, but I'm not that familiar with her work. Because she ended up, she ended up getting the Warren Commission. She ended up getting all the reports for the Warren Commission. All how many volumes it was for her birthday, and she single-handedly for her Christmas or birthday in 1960s, and single-handedly cross-referenced each Warren Commission report. And later on in life, she ended up dying mysteriously of cancer. And yet, she was a vegetarian all her life. Mm. And that was that's sort of similar to like Jack Ruby, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, Jack Ruby is a little bit different story in that, uh, you know, he had been tried and convicted of killing Lee Harvey Oswald and got the death sentence, which was quite a surprise to them, I think. But later on, uh, they had appealed and, and got a uh, motion for a new trial and had that granted and a change of venue. And they were going to move him to uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, to a stand trial there, which meant he would have to be out of the hands of uh, the Dallas authorities. And uh, before they move him, he course died of cancer. But it's interesting that when uh, the Warren Commission was meeting, they, uh, they uh, came down to see Jack Ruby, Earl Warren and, and Congressman Gerald Ford at the time, later to be president, came down and interviewed Jack Ruby in his jail cell. And Ruby told him at that time, said, I can't talk here. My life is in danger. If you'll take me to Washington, I'll tell you the, the truth. And no less than six times he begged them to get him out of Dallas so that he could tell them the truth about what happened in Dallas. Of course, they didn't move him, and uh, he was dead before he ever got out of the hands of the Dallas authorities. Ruby believed that the Nazis were in control. Was that not true? Uh, 
he did mention that in letters, notes that he smuggled out of the uh, out of the jail that uh, this had something to do with Nazism and and so forth. Like he said, Ruby was a Jew, and he said his people were in danger. I must get to Washington. My people are in danger. Something terrible is going to happen. What was his? What were? He, what was he thinking of then? Was it possibly that the Nazis had were in control? That uh, that's a possibility in his mind, and. Uh, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that there were some Nazis because we did uh, infiltrate a lot of Nazis into this country after World War II, From the especially in, into the intelligence apparatus of this country, uh, primarily to watch Russia, uh, and uh, because uh, this country uh, very early on distrusted Stalin and the Russians, and uh, they felt more comfortable with uh, Hitler's Nazis than they did with uh, with Stalin's Russians. And, which is a peculiar thing, but that's, uh, that's the way it goes. What did the House Select Committee into the assassination of John F. Kennedy when it was um, reopened? When was that, 1974 to 79? It opened about 1977, 78, and 79. It closed on December 31st, 1979. What did it reveal? Oh, very little, of any, if anything. Uh, they basically took the same tainted evidence that had been handed to them from the uh, Warren Commission and came to the conclusion again that uh, the single bullet uh, theory was valid, uh, that there was a high probability that there was a conspiracy, but they couldn't answer where it went, uh, that, the, uh, that there was a shot from the uh, knoll at least once, at least one shot, and uh, basically did very little uh, good, except that they did publish 12 volumes of material before locking up the vast amount of, of other testimony and materials that would have been, uh, if put in the hands of researchers, would have jerked the rug after, out from under the, the people who perpetrated this crime. And they know it. Thanks for speaking to me, Gary Shaw, from, uh, well, I guess you're speaking from Dallas right now? Dallas, Texas, and uh, I tell the people that if they can get to Dallas, it will be well worth their while to attend the symposium, and uh, they'll get to meet some of the finest guys and, and experts on the, on the Kennedy assassination and can help us continue to, to raise public awareness to the, to the faults and the falsehood perpetrated on us by the Warren Commission in 1964. And they can look for your book, too. You have a book coming out? I have a book coming out uh, probably right after the first of the year called Conspiracy of Silence, Three Days at Parkland, and it's written... Uh, by uh, myself and uh, Dr. Charles Crenshaw, who was present for those three uh, fatal days uh, in Dallas with the president and then later with Lee Harvey Oswald, and uh, is going to skin the hide off of some people. Like who? <laughs> You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> okay, I always have to wait. One other thing I was wondering, Gary, was I, I heard that Lee Harvey Oswald's P.O. box number was the same as Jack Ruby's unlisted telephone number. Is that, have you ever heard of that before? No, that's not exactly right. Uh, it is unusual. That. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty well standard intelligence thing to have post office boxes. Jack Ruby's post office box and Lee Harvey Oswald's post office box were within 10 feet of each other at the same post office. And yet they... That's the most uh, significant thing about his post office. And yet, and yet, the Warren Commission claimed they never met. Even, and, and when, he, when Ruby went to trial, the, the district attorney of Dallas said, we'll not call any testimony that uh, talks about a relationship between Ruby and Oswald prior to the assassination. 
Do visitors... Does that sound like a, a truthful approach to a, to a criminal proceeding? It sounds very governmental. Yes. Do visitors to Dallas, do they check out these places? Do people try to pursue research on their own? Does sure. It, sure. Do... And, and one of the things we offer at the center is a bus tour in which uh, you can uh, get on the bus and be taken not only to Dealey Plaza and walk around it and be shown the things that are of pertinence there, go to the sixth floor, uh, go from there to Oswald's rooming house in the Texas theater where uh, Oswald was captured uh, by Jack Ruby's apartment uh, onto the Dallas Police Department where Oswald was shot on out to Parkland Hospital in Lovefield. You can see all of the, the sites, the historic sites of, uh, of that day in, uh, in Dallas. And your, the center, is it located right in Dallas? Is it right easy in to Dallas, find? Just, uh, just a short distance from, uh, from Dealey Plaza where the president was shot. It's 603 Munger. I noticed that, like, Ruth Payne, that was Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, rumor, room owner of the house he was staying in, right? That's correct. Uh, can you just look up Payne in the phone book under Ruth and phone and talk to her? Like, what did these... Oh, no, she's been out of Dallas for a long time. What did these... Uh, she has any? Yes, uh -huh. What did these witnesses or people that have still were sort of there when it happened, did they get tired of being bugged over and over again? Not bugged. Do not bug, like physically bug, but I mean like people hounding them, trying to track them down? Some do, and, and some are very careful about listing their numbers, and, and some are very hard to find, and some won't talk when you do find them. So, uh, you know, if, if somebody has the, the time and the, and the uh, wherewithal to come to Dallas and do research, they'll find it sometimes very stubborn, but many times very worthwhile and, and, uh, and revealing also. Great. And finally, I'm Gary Shaw. Thanks for speaking to me, Nardward, Mr. Serviette. I was wondering, regarding Nixon, what is his story? Where was Nixon, the greatest president of the United States of America, where was he when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? The, the greatest president who, who ever was forced to resign, uh, Richard Nixon, was in Dallas on the morning of the assassination, the night before he was in Dallas, and uh, suddenly got Alzheimer's disease when asked where he was when the president was killed because he couldn't remember. And uh, in all of my experience, I've only encountered two people who could not remember where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news the president was dead. One was Richard Nixon, and the other was his cohort, E. Howard Hunt of Watergate fame, who was a longtime CIA man involved in all of the Bay of Pigs and Cuban fiasco. Strange but true. Where were you on November? 22nd, 1963. And now, here's Johnny. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your... Just a moment. Just a moment. We have a bulletin coming in. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. Stand by, please. Stand by, please. In Dallas, Texas... It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. In the motorcade route. If, if, if being I'm being Three shots were fired. Put me on, Bill. Put me on. Three. Put me on, Bill. Put me on. Three. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Stand by, please. Stand by, please. The president was hit in the head. He grabbed himself and he slumped down. The president was hit in the head. He grabbed himself and he slumped down. Stand by, please. Stand by, please. Damn! More details just arrived. Mrs. Kennedy.
said on. Something has happened here. We understand there has been a shooting. Something has happened here. media and a motorcade sped on and before that an interview with jfk assassination researcher j gary shaw coming up david emery with his take on the jfk assassination from now 2007 and as i mentioned off the top in a couple weeks dave emery will be live on the nardwarta human serviette radio show on citr fm 102 cable 102 vancouver british columbia Canada to take your calls. That's a couple weeks from now on Anardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. So here's Dave Emery's take on the assassination from a 2007 perspective. This is part one of his show. We'll play part one another day, but this is part, so we'll play part two. This is part one of Dave Emery on the assassination on CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, Columbia, Canada. The assassination, November 22nd, 1963, November 23rd, 2007. Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and 
This is side one of For the Record program number 619, titled Interview with Paris Flamand on the Anniversary of President Kennedy's Assassination. This program is being recorded on November 18th of the year 2007. It is my pleasure to bring someone to the airwaves, to the For the Record airwaves, that, like Jules Archer, whom I interviewed earlier this year, is one of those people whose work helped to uh, inspire me, literally set me on my life's professional path. Paris Flamand is uh, a man, something of a Renaissance man. He's not only an author, but a radio talk show host like yours truly. And his 1969 book, The Kennedy Conspiracy, about, among other things, Jim Garrison's investigations, primarily about New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's investigation into President Kennedy's assassination that alerted me to the realities of that event and to some other profound and underlying political realities. And Attempting to address those really set me on my life's path. And once again, that path is intersecting with the path of Paris Flamand. And this time, once again, uh, it is upon the occasion of his having published on the subject of President Kennedy. Paris, welcome to our airwaves. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Now, I wonder, Bob, before we talk about the assassination of President Kennedy itself, tell us about your new four-volume series and uh, what, what is to be found in each of those, for those four volumes and how people can order it. Bear in mind that we can't mention prices on the air. Right. Uh, well, as you will understand, this will take me uh, uh, about 15 to 20 seconds because it is so uh, voluminous a uh, project. In any event, the assassination of America, which is its title, is uh, not, quote, another assassination book, unquote. It's, uh, you know, on ballistics or forensics or a specific person of, uh, well, and regarding the books, of course, there are many, many hundreds of them now. But this is a comprehensive and encyclopedic history of the entire period of the killing of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and it covers four volumes about 1,850 pages and 150 pages of photographs, illustrations, of which there are about 450. Book one is about the deaths in Dallas, and that is its title, and covers November 22, 1963, and the time immediately surrounding it. Book two is The Mask of New Orleans, uh, which is an expansion of the earlier book which you mentioned, The Kennedy Conspiracy, which um, was the history of the, the first history of the Jim Garrison uh, investigation into the assassination. And it included some of my personal efforts on uh, the district attorney's behalf uh, regarding uh, uh, inquiring into just what was and where was the uh, mysterious international organization Permandex and the equally strange grouping uh, Centro Mondiale, Mondiale uh, Commercial. Uh, and I also uh, did a lot of research for him into the uh, old Catholic Church of North America, which seems to pre permeate uh, various aspects of the assassination, especially in the uh, New Orleans facet. And the uh, third volume, Baron Harvest, explores and explains uh, how Kennedy was killed why Kennedy was killed, who killed Kennedy, has a summation of those uh, aspects and uh, uh, 30 uh, definitive appendices on virtually everything you can think of relating 
to the uh, the subject, and this final book, which just came out a few weeks ago, The Indices of the Assassination of America, features a dramatist personae with uh, the uh, uh, identification of everybody in the preceding volumes uh, up to their 2,300 entries uh, of that nature, a full subject index, an illustration index, a core agenda, and uh, something most people find a little unexpected, six reviews of Gerald Posner's and Vincent Bugliosi's uh, Oswald as the Lone Assassin books uh, by uh, half a dozen of the major critics, including uh, James uh, DiEugenio and James Fetzer and Josiah Thompson and Gaston Ponzi and Dr. Gary Aguilar and David Rohn. Uh, the the entire set is available now. Um, and bear in mind, now, we can't we can't mention prices on the air. No, but I ahead. wasn't going to. I sure. was just mention the address. Right. And uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, or the just the final for those who have already bought uh, the first three volumes and a number of people, of course, have uh, the uh, the volume four is available singly. And they can be gotten through me or the publisher name Scanuscription. It's a little complicated, so I'll spell it. S-C-A-N-U-S-C-R-I-P-T-I-O-N at uh, Post Office Box 48, Scioto, again, odd spelling, S-C-I-O-T-A, Pennsylvania, 18354. And uh, I regret to say that I'm not able to handle... uh, credit uh, cards, uh, or neither are they, but we can take uh, checks or money orders. All righty, and neither myself nor this radio station gets any money from this arrangement. Uh, One of the things about uh, the assassination of America, this really is something of an encyclopedia, not only about key aspects of the assassination of President Kennedy and other American political assassinations, but also about the milieu, my favorite word that... uh, really was responsible for bringing to the American public the truth, the general truth about the assassination. For all of the the divisions between various researchers, it was this milieu, which you have uh, to an extent memorialized excuse me, in, in your, in your uh, encyclopedia, encyclopedic series that was responsible for alerting the public, including years truly, to the fact that the official version, uh, as rehashed by people like Gerald Posner and Vincent Bugliosi, is not only wrong, I think a lot of people know that, but it's completely ridiculous and, and can be fundamentally disproved from information which can be verifiable on the public record itself. And it is that public record that you and the milieu that you memorialized and represented in your four-volume series, well, basically that is what you've done. You've, you've made people aware of the reality of American power politics. Uh, yes, uh, one of the aspects uh, of the uh, uh, of the set of books is that uh, it points out the uh, enormous number of uh, really egregious errors that have been propounded over the last uh, 40 years, 44 years actually almost, and, uh, of course, these recent books that have come out, uh, the, uh, Posner and uh, uh, Bogliosi, uh, are absolutely rife with the errors. And, uh, simp- I mean, factual errors, not errors of opinion, because one can always uh, 
uh, squabble about that. But uh, there is simply, uh, uh, particularly in the former, uh, amazing number of uh, uh, basic inaccuracies, as if uh, the person had never uh, even bothered to look at the 26 volumes, which, by the way, I strongly suspect that neither of them ever has. It wouldn't surprise me one bit. One of the interesting things about the legacy of, of people on the other side of the aisle from those you've memorialized, part of the legacy of people like Gerald Posner and Vincent who have worked over the years to uphold the untenable official orthodoxy is that, uh, that uh, the truth itself remains pigeonholed. A, a lot of people really do not understand or don't well, realize at all that in the late 1970s, a congressional select committee, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, investigated the assassinations of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King, concluded that there was almost certainly a conspiracy behind the assassinations of each, and among their recommendations was to for the Department of Justice to investigate David Ferry and the anti-Castro Cubans in New Orleans. That's who Jim Garrison was after. And the special counsel in charge of the New Orleans phase of the investigation said uh, that Clay Shaw, Garrison's number two uh, target, was certainly involved in the anti-Castro-Cuban activities and may very well have been either one of the planners of or one of the cutouts to the planners of the assassination, vindicating Jim Garrison's investigation. Paris, there's a whole generation of people out there who are not familiar with uh, the focal point of your four-volume series or the Kennedy Conspiracy, your 1969 opus. How would you go about explaining to some of the younger and or uh, less informed people about the realities of President Kennedy's assassination, starting with this official lie as represented by people or the official error-filled version as represented by people like Posner and Bugliosi, how would one going about go about explaining or encapsulating briefly to uh, the uninformed what, what the reality is as opposed to the official version? Well, for those who were not born uh, when uh, the tragedy occurred or those who were too young to be conscious of uh, what was evolving or being uh, disseminated from uh, Washington and elsewhere, uh, it should be uh, simply viewed uh, historically. Uh, One should be able to... uh, 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 arouse in oneself the uh, interest that one might have in uh, the assassination of uh, Julius Caesar or Abraham Lincoln uh, or the beginning of World War One uh, or Two. It's a major historical event in the 20th century for the United States, uh, very possibly uh, the major historical event of the second half of the century. Uh, it um, is no longer uh, popular to assassinate presidents, but at one time, uh, every president uh, in a 20-year cycle uh, from very early on died in office. Not all were assassinated. A few simply died of natural causes, we may suppose, uh, but uh, a number were assassinated in the uh, and uh, that uh, apparently concluded with uh, John Kennedy because uh, his successors uh, have managed to uh, stay alive. However, the Kennedy case was so complex that it uh, and so dramatic that it uh, will uh, undoubtedly, a hundred years from now, stand out as one of the uh, most extraordinary. Uh, uh, political uh, events in this country's history and probably uh, in the uh, Western Hemisphere. 
very simply put, the youngest president ever to occupy the White House was uh, shot down in cold blood on a marvelously beautiful sunny afternoon, just past noon, in uh, Dallas. Uh, although he had been warned not to go there, that there was a, a great deal of antipathy towards him and some of his policies. And uh, the uh, result was that uh, he not only uh, went there, he not only appeared in a motorcade, uh, but he declined to have the uh, glass bubble that was supposed to be protective uh, 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 placed on the car, where in point of fact it didn't matter because it wasn't bulletproof, uh, although it has been said to, that it was. but. Uh, the later uh, information has made it quite clear that it was not uh, uh, bulletproof. And uh, so uh, on that afternoon, uh, the entire history of the United States was changed uh, forever. Uh, he uh, had already made it quite clear, and documents have verified that, some of which I've been reviewing just in the last week, that he intended to pull out of Vietnam. He was, had uh, ordered uh, 10,000 to be removed very quickly, another 25,000 very soon, and uh, everybody out within a year. And uh, of course, uh, when uh, his uh, death uh, permitted uh, Lyndon Johnson to succeed him, the war was made uh, larger, expanded, and more people were killed. and. Uh, of course, it was uh, one of the great disasters of American military history. So uh, one can point out innumerable things that happened uh, either because he wasn't there to prevent them or, or uh, because other people were. And uh, that uh, is uh, pretty much what I attempt to cover in the uh, four volumes. That's why it's four volumes and not one. Uh, because there was so much material, there were so many witnesses. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Volume One, it um, covers just the theories that were uh, expounded uh, within the two or three years after his uh, death, and they number about 30, <laughs> ranging from the uh, FBI, the CIA. Uh, the, the Russians, the Chinese, the, and all the way down to uh, magic cults and uh, voodoo doctors. It's uh, unbelievable how the uh, impact of this uh, extraordinarily popular president's uh, uh, death uh, was on people of uh, every character and every uh, uh, persuasion. And, uh, well, I think uh, that's about as broad a picture I can paint of it and just, uh, I hope, not too many words. Uh, <clears throat> let's, let's try to do the uh, perhaps impossible, Paris. Let's try to just encapsulate a few of the fundamentals of the forensic evidence. Now, the Warren Commission, the Presidential Fact-Finding Commission, which certainly belongs in quotes, uh, that was in fact there to cover up the assassination, as well as subsequent official versions or semi-official versions, such as the Posner or Bugliosi texts, uh, endorsed the single bullet theory, which in many ways could be said to be the forensic core of the official version. How would you go about encapsulating a critique well, of first, the, I, the... I agree with you. That's almost the pivotal. Uh, it's you know there are so uh, in, uh, innumerable aspects to the case, literally hundreds. <coughs> Excuse me. But if any one uh, thing might 
be thought of as the key. It is the single bullet theory uh, 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 enunciated by Arlen Specter, whom, just parenthetically, uh, I think has uh, shown himself to be very shrewd, clever, and bright uh, in um, many of his uh, uh, presentations and uh, speaks well, etc. But this was one of the great uh, mistakes of uh, American history. Very quickly, Paris, Arlen Specter was the Warren Commission counsel who shepherded the single bullet theory. Now, he is a Republican senator from Pennsylvania and under uh, the, the recent Republican administrations, was head of the, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. Right. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, that uh, is, is important for, for someone to know just who it was that invented uh, the theory. Well, in any event, uh, the uh, it was called uh, Commission Exhibit 399. I don't know why I always thought that number was had an ominous tone to it, <laughs> even originally. But in any event, uh, it was alleged to have been the single bi uh, bullet that uh, slew John Kennedy. Uh, and uh, if, in fact, any such missile ever existed in actuality. Uh, but it uh, was uh, accredited with possessing mystical, even phantasmagorical uh, properties. Namely, it hurtled through two torsi of human bodies and a wrist, inflicting seven distinct wounds, but almost uh, suffered almost no physical damage or loss of mass, emerging as pristine as the day it was manufactured. Well, anyone who knows anything about uh, firearms or uh, uh, ballistics knows that was an absolute physical impossibility. Furthermore, in its miraculous flight, it clearly altered, it was required to do what the Warren Commission said. Uh, it was necessary for it to have altered course several times, which is an aerodynamic impossibility. And uh, all of these uh, details uh, of these fantasies, by the way, uh, are uh, d detailed in, in, in the work. And uh, d there are many photographs that uh, show the condition of the, the bullets and, uh, and before uh, it uh, was uh, disappeared and then reappeared. And another thing about it was very curious. After all of this that had been done, then a bullet, I noticed I use A rather than D, uh, was found on the stretcher uh, on which uh, presumably lay uh, John F. Kennedy as he died uh, when uh, he was taken to Parkland uh, Hospital. So the uh, whole story of it is uh, uh, mythic to the point of being uh, fictional. And we should also mention that uh, bullets often change course fairly dramatically in tissue, in fascia. Absolutely. Uh, but they don't execute sharp turns in midair without being acted upon by and external objects, which is, which is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about something that hits somebody and then travels through the body. We're talking about sharp turns in midair in contravention of the law of inertia. Right. Absolutely. And uh, this basically, uh, this one bullet has to have been the vehicle for inflicting seven non-fatal wounds on John Connolly, the then governor of Texas and President Kennedy. Otherwise, the 
fundamentals have to be that there was more than one assassin. Because if you have more than three shots, then you have more than one assassin. Of course, and if I may parenthesize, uh, John Connolly, who uh, Texan, uh, member of the administration, supreme politician, uh, never bought the uh, uh, Warren Commission report. He, he always rejected uh, the uh, the explanation of the uh, number of bullets and the sequence in which they occurred. So even when you have one of your own men uh, finding uh, that you're fantasizing, then uh, it uh, even makes uh, more questionable, although it's hardly necessary to question uh, the... Uh, uh, the essential absurdity of the uh, mechanics of the uh, entire uh, uh, ballistic power. As you say, the seven distinct wounds and uh, changing sp- uh, uh, direction in midair, although not uh, from uh, the impact of anything. Uh, it, well, the, the, the whole magic bullet theory is now, of course, uh, regarded as ludicrous by anybody who understands the case at all. And uh, there are a great many other discrepancies in the physical evidence of Oswald and his supposed marksmanship itself, including the Mandlicker Carcano. Uh, Paris, do you want to take some time to talk about the Mandlicker Carcano, or would you like to talk about other things, say, uh, the evidence in the Tippett case? I think it's important, uh, next to the uh, 399, uh, it's uh, almost uh, the next most important thing. Uh, to begin with, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Mandlicker was uh, a very inferior uh, weapon, a 6.5 caliber rif- uh, Italian rifle, uh, model 1938. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it is uh, notably inaccurate, and that particular one, or at least the one alleged to have been found, uh, had improperly mounted sights. Um, it, how, uh, the most important, not the most important thing, one of the most interesting things about that entire um, revelation of the weapon of uh, assassination was that uh, the Mandlicker was not the first uh, weapon they came up with. Initially, it was described as a British Enfield 303 from World War One. Then they switched it to a German uh, Mauser uh, 7.65 of pretty much the like antiquity. Uh, then they uh, should note just parenthetically that the English gun, uh, the um, uh, Enfield, was said to have been discovered on the seventh floor, not the sixth floor, as we should clarify for those who are not current with the, the mechanics of the uh, case. The uh, Oswald allegedly fired from the sixth floor, but this was discovered on the seventh. However, the following day, Henry Wade, the main Dallas police official, said, quote, the rifle was not German, as announced the previous day, but Italian, not a Mauser, but a carbine, not a 7.6 millimeter, but a 6.5. The uh, revelation to the police force was uh, not unexpected considering the fact that imprinted on the weapon they produced as the murder weapon was uh, the phrase made in Italy also CAL.6.5 and the catalog number C.2766 hardly to be expected on a German firearm or a British uh, rifle so uh, the uh, 
either machinations or incap- uh, incompetence of uh, the uh, uh, officialdom uh, uh, that that day and the following day uh, was uh, monumental, and uh, no excuse has ever really, really been made for it. Uh, it's been simply sloughed over as uh, uh, as uh, if it were customary in uh, police procedure, and um, I'm not one to say that it isn't. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left on side one here, Paris, and mm-hmm. on side two I'd like to go into... The identities of the two lone nut assassins, or so we're told, of November 22nd, first Oswald, of course, or maybe first Jack Ruby and then Oswald. But uh, there was another victim in addition to President Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. That was Dallas Patrolman J.D. Tippett. Uh, In the last couple of minutes here, I wonder if you would encapsulate for us some of the discrepancies with regard to the investigation, in quotes, of of, of, uh, Patrolman Tippett's assassination. Well, there are many curious aspects about the Tippett uh, case. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Bill Turner noted, uh, Bill Turner, the very major uh, assassination critic, uh, noted that uh, the officer was clearly singled out for particular instructions, uh, italicized, and uh, plus he made no great haste to get to the assigned scene when he was ordered to go there, rush, rush. Uh, he was uh, uh, sent to identify, a curious word uh, that was used on the radio, a 30-ish white male, 5 foot 10, 165-pound individual. Uh, he went in uh, that direction, apparently um, somewhat casually, as we've uh, uh, determined from, um, well, other sources I won't go into. Uh, he turned on to 10th Street, which is uh, the uh, pertinent uh, uh, access at uh, this uh, juncture. Uh, it is asserted that he uh, saw a person fitting the description, namely 30-ish, 5'10", white male, and uh, he, uh, the, passenger, the person came over to his open passenger window to chat with him for a couple of minutes. Uh, Tippett uh, then exited his uh, vehicle, purportedly, and walked around the car to speak to the man more directly. The uh, stranger drew a pistol, uh, this is the report, and fired repeatedly at the policeman, hitting him four times. He died instantly. There were various purported witnesses, including T.F. Bowley, who remarked at the time, uh, who remarked the time uh, being uh, 10 uh, minutes past one. He immediately, with great presence of mind, used the uh, patrol car radio to inform headquarters of the murder. Also on scene was uh, Domingo Benavides, who subsequently, uh, though pressed, refused to identify the stranger as being Oswald. Uh, Aquila Clemens, uh, who was uh, looking out of a window uh, and had some uh, uh, observations to make, was advised by the police to forget what she had seen, knowing anything, as they put it, could be dangerous. Uh, Barbara and Virginia Davis were witnesses to peripheral activity uh, uh, on the occasion. And perhaps the most interesting of all was one Helen Markham who told a series of details, uh, at least 10 extremely explicit details, including how she held the policeman in her arms as he expired, et cetera, et cetera, although we know he died uh, instantaneously. 
and uh, ultimately it uh, was demonstrable that virtually everything she said was a fabrication or a misconception, uh, but her uh, value as a witness was ultimately reduced to absolute zero. And one of the things that uh, we should also note in closing on the subject of Tippett is that there are significant discrepancies with regard to the bullets that were found in his body in the cartridge cases in the weapon allegedly used to kill him. There are, oh, there are many, <clears throat> many others. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, af- immediate aftermath, uh, uh, where, which direction he had been driving uh, uh, just before coming over there, which was in the wrong direction to get to where he was supposed to be assigned. Uh, that is a, a complex and fascinating case in itself, which is only being uh, subsumed by the enormous importance of the death of the president. We will be taking this up, this subject up on side two of For the Record program number 619. This, however, concludes side one of For the Record program 619, interview with Paris Flamand on the anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. This is being recorded on November 18th of the year 2007. For Paris Flamand, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening. Following is a live presentation of CITR News.